welcome to the Liberated Porch Podcast. I'm your host, Kit Morgan, licensed social worker and therapist. Join me as I sit down with guests to chat about finding liberation through social justice and mental health. Welcome to the podcast, John. I am so glad that you're here. It was just a couple of months ago that I was on your podcast, The Cult of Christianity, and John is the host of The Cult of Christianity, also the author of the book, Cult of Christianity, and is a master of journalist student at NYU. So thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, Kit, thanks for having me on. I'm very excited for this. Something that I want to be exploring some more is just the evolution of what Christianity was for you. Like today, you recognize it now as a cult and have a lot of grounds of backing this up, which is just, I mean, it's really incredible what you've done with the research of Christianity. And we can talk about that later, but I'm wondering, how did you get to that point? Like, what was Christianity and its meaning for you in growing up? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was everything, I think, is the only way to put it. I don't think it was a part of my life. I think it was my life. You could say I was indoctrinated, but I like to think that I took a little more ownership than that. It is true that I was certainly indoctrinated. I grew up in a religious household. Uh, You know, we were very fervent followers in the sense that we were at church twice on Sunday and, you know, multiple times during the week. My dad was a elder in the church that I grew up in. My family changed churches in my preteen years. And probably right before that is when I really like converted to Christianity. I mean, my old testimony, I told people I accepted Jesus when I was 11 and actually had like a little bit of a crisis because I had been taking communion before I was 11. And I was like, oh, no, I've got two years banked of sin of taking the communion too early and stuff. But yeah. I want to go back to that. Yeah. About communion, because communion can mean a lot of different things mm-hmm. based on what a person is familiar with in terms of denomination and, and yeah. Christianity. So what did communion mean? for your religious upbringing yeah communion in most protestant traditions except maybe some of the non-denoms but in most protestant traditions is going to be one of the only two sacraments that they adhere to sacraments just really mean a ritual of some sort catholics kind of make the word sound a little different than that but baptism and communion are the are the two main sacraments baptism is when you get water on your head at and there's debates about what age you should do that or why you should do that and then communion is usually eating bread or wine or grape juice basically eating things that represent Christ's body and blood and in most traditions you need to be a christian in order to uh, participate in communion it's for believers only. There are some traditions that will let other people try it, but I grew up in the tradition that was pretty strict about, they actually would say this, only evangelical Christians were allowed to participate in communion. Yes. I grew up in that same tradition and (laughs) I I was such a bad Christian, John. I hated (laughs) communion. I was just like, ugh. The little grape juice, you know? Shot. (laughs) Exactly. 
it looks like a little shot of grape juice. I, as, as a kid, I was like, at least they could give me a full glass of grape juice and a <laughs> bowl of Kraft mac and cheese. But instead they have this cheap bread with this little shot of off-brand grape juice. And yep. it, it was, it was very disappointing. I thought that it was going to be better than that in converting to Christianity, you know? I went to two different churches before I was 18. Um, both of them were Presbyterian PCA for who, you know, if that means anything to anyone. When I was younger, yeah, it was the cheap grape juice. And then I upgraded to cheap wine. So I started having <laughs> wine at like 11, 12 years old. <laughs> I, I probably kept me from drinking for years because having cheap wine with communion. But the the interesting thing is, yeah, communion did mean a lot to me. And I think I viewed it as yeah. very spiritual and took my faith very seriously. I mean, I, I really did. Mm -hmm. and, and after I converted, it wasn't I'm doing what daddy and mommy are telling me. In fact, me and my yeah. parents would often get into like theological debate. I was I was encouraged to have small theological disagreements mm. with them. Like they would get upset if there was anything like big. But if it was a small disagreement, like, I don't like what the pastor said, we were encouraged, me and both my older sisters were encouraged to, you know, like, engage with theology, we'll say. So by the time 17 and wanting to go study to be a pastor, uh, that is my decision. I'm not being pressured into that by anyone. So Christianity very much was my entire life, my life goal. I just wanted to spread the gospel. It was not something I have like attached to my personality. In a lot of ways, it was my personality. So spreading the gospel, I just like to look at these different phrases mm -hmm. because with having listeners who are non-evangelical, spreading the gospel can be kind of code for yeah. converting others to evangelicalism. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of has a twofold meaning, I'd even say, which is why it gets confusing, is on one hand, spreading the gospel, you're exactly right. It's that con seeking to convert other people. In another sense, it's almost like proving your faith. <laughs> and you're kind of fulfilling mm -hmm. a mission when you mm -hmm. do that. And one of the crises I think a lot of people who grew up, you know, fervently Christian like I did ran into is it doesn't actually seem like many churches take that mission quite as seriously as they might say they do. So like you'll see like mission trips or like ministries that do spread the gospel. You know, that's a lot of coded language. But what really happens more than anything is when you take that message seriously is you notice how much churches don't really participate in that that much and are very self-serving and are very afraid yeah. of the world and like not wanting to engage the world that much uh at least over here in in, in the united states i'd say oh yeah absolutely and i see missions trips by the american church as being colonization mm -hmm. yeah absolutely totally agree with that so whenever you were saying that christianity was you're all and everything there's this phrase in evangelicalism about finding your identity in christ mm -hmm. and that can have a lot of different interpretations to that i think a lot of times it can be the teachings that are passed on from the church or from Christian families about what that identity looks like. And then it's just a very natural part of childhood development of wanting to please those who are in authority until getting to like middle childhood. 
and then wanting to deviate from the norm and start challenging and questioning belief systems and, and patterns. And I am wondering before the age of 11, did Christianity still affect your identity in some way? And after conversion, how did that change your identity further or did it seem like it stayed about the same? Great question. I, 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 this was when I was studying to be a pastor, this was like basically my testimony. Uh, I like framed this whole moment of conversion as before I took ownership of my faith, I was just kind of doing the people pleasing thing. Um, I was almost saying it in kind of a judgmental way of me being a kid. <laughs> like I was a kid who wanted to please my parents. How dare I, hmm. you know, which is it's already problematic. But I would yeah. say before 11, it was very much like, I just don't want to get in trouble. You know, I just want to do the right mm -hmm. thing. I was a goody. I was, you know, a tattletale. I was a goody goody, you know, all that good stuff. After I was 11. Yeah, my identity changed radically because it, you know, it was kind of a combination of like a a church camp experience and just getting older and starting to ask my dad questions like how can we trust the bible and him handing me a book on textual criticism and me reading it you know i was <laughs> just kind of like i was really investigating it I, I, as i'm talking i'm realizing oh i was a little journalist but uh <laughs> you were yeah <laughs> and so i was ready to own it so by the time i made the decision it was about the relationship with jesus which now i would translate that to something closer of it was a more emotional faith it was mm. a um passion for loving others and wanting others to be loved and i think in a lot of ways it was a searching for love a love that i hadn't felt before because growing up so isolated in those christian environments what i was taught was love didn't feel like love um it felt like again that kind of obedience thing so i was trying to kind of search for the thing i knew i needed through the only framing I had, which was Christianity. And so I think that's what got me deeper and deeper in and made me more passionate and want to, you know, share the gospel for a living. And and frankly, I think I would have framed it as a, my life wouldn't be worth living if, it, if I wasn't sharing the gospel so um, consistently and constantly. I think that love is such a complicated topic and concept especially whenever looking at growing up in evangelicalism I remember my experiences in churches and Christian school and Christian camps there was a lot of talk about the Greek love mm -hmm. agape eros and mm -hmm. phileo and I'm wondering if you can speak more to that and what you learned from that and growing up and where you're at now in terms of redefining what love means and looks like for you after leaving Christianity. Mm. This is something I've been thinking about a lot this year. I, I mean, I even I actually did a whole monologue on my podcast co called simply titled Love, where I explore this very in depth for way too long. Um, but um, <laughs> I uh, agree wholeheartedly how complicated that word is. Um, and I the, the Greek words of Eros Philo and it's really interpreted kind of poorly by evangelicals but um you know i didn't really learn that framing till a little bit later um when i was like in bible college but 
the whole idea of like eros which is like this romantic sexual love or like philo which is more of a brotherly love and then agape which is like this god love this unconditional love you could maybe stretch it to something like the evangelical love i just think that's too limiting <laughs> yeah I mean, frankly i'm like i i don't know you can have sex with a friend <laughs> like i'll just put right. it that way you can like feel like someone's your god when you know they don't feel the same towards you i mean like there's it's just, it's a very, very narrow version of it. I mean, I currently kind of view love more as, I mean, in my podcast, I say it as air. Like it's it's breathing, you know, it's something that comes mm. in and goes out and you have to have both. Um, and like, you know, I, I think you need to give love and you need to get love in order to just be a healthy human and a happy human. If you try to define it too much, you'll get farther away from it. Maybe that's a little too pseudo spiritual for some <laughs> and maybe even myself. Really do think there's, to the idea of love being the best thing that humans do and not framing it so much by parameters of what is and what isn't but more focusing on what is coming out of me and what is going into me and mm -hmm. uh yeah so that's that's definitely a reframe when i was a christian love was uh whatever jesus says i mean that that ultimately had to be my answer i remember in sunday school whenever we would get asked different questions and we really wouldn't know what the answer was to it in my Sunday school class growing up, then we just had this running joke of just shouting, God, Jesus, yep. Holy yep. Spirit, because yep. of lacking that critical thinking, not being encouraged to critically think. Mm. And how that can really affect the way that we understand ourselves and also interact with others. Definitely. It's easier, isn't it, to just have a kind of silver bullet of an answer for life's hardest questions. I think in a lot of ways, Christianity provided that to me and provides it to many others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever having things be so black and white, that can sometimes feel more comfortable or safer, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. So going back to your identity and Christianity, tell me more about what that was like for you as a teenager. Yeah, as a teenager, I think it was a little odd because I kind of had a lot of worlds colliding at once. Mm. You know, I was not in evangelical culture much as a teenager. I mean, I was in a band, like a punk band, with like technically like all the band members were Christian, but it's not like we like wrote Christian music or like, you know, I, I mean, we all like swore up and down. All were toxic masculine, like teenagers, like and like, <laughs> you know, it was never like I was afraid to cuss as a teenager or like, you know, I, I really after conversion, I didn't worry about being a goody two shoes as much because I think I had reframed things as, oh, it's about loving Jesus. So the rules aren't as important. So I wasn't like stressed out about the rules or at least the cultural rules. I'll put it that way. I was deeply concerned with like the morality rules and like the existential mm. rules. But I wasn't too worried about like talking about that girl's boobs or whatever with my like that didn't feel like the end of the world to me. <laughs> like that felt like that's it. We're just boys being boys like, yeah, which is also problematic. But I think I didn't really have like the the same pressure of like evangelicalism on me. 
that some did um because even though i spent a lot of time in church most of my closest friends were not christians they were like atheist agnostic you know they they were you know from sports or music and and so just different people so my Christianity, it, you know, people would be like, well, you know, John's kind of like Christian. And that, that, uh, it would surprise people sometimes to learn that I was a Christian. And then I started really surprising people at 17 when I told them I was going to be Kobe a pastor. Most of the people who knew me, friends or acquaintances, when they would hear that would actually laugh out loud. They'd be like, John's not going to be a pastor because it was so against my personality. It was very much fitting identity for what was going on internally. But I don't think I was showing a lot of what was going on internally. So I think my Christianity, for, uh, from the perspective of others, was just something that was kind of weird about me. And for me, it was my whole identity, but I didn't want anyone to know because I knew those bad connotations of Christians who, as like this judgmental, like hateful group. And I wanted so badly to disassociate with that, but I still had what I would call the brainwashing of this is the right way to live this is the only right way to live um so it was a very hard thing to be for me to be a christian as a teenager and i tell people when i felt the call to be a pastor i did not want to be a pastor i just thought god was telling me to be one and i was just doing my duty and saying fine god you win i'll go um, and so I did, you know, I was that committed to the ideals of my Christianity that I was willing to do something I knew would make me miserable. Mm -hmm. I want to explore more of masculinity mm -hmm. and how masculinity affected what you saw as your spiritual calling at the time mm. of becoming a pastor. So that's one part. And then the other part is there can be so many unhealthy representations of masculinity, mm -hmm. regardless of whatever environment you're in, whether it be religious or non-religious. And I'm wondering, as you were growing up, did you have some healthy representations of masculinity? I would say I did, but not at church. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, would, I would say my dad, you know, not a perfect person, but ultimately was a good male role model. I would say I also had some like sports coaches who were very good male role models. Um, and, so yeah. how did you see the contrast between those unhealthy representations and then the healthy representations? You know, it was less, the unhealth wasn't so much like, well, well, mm. There's a lot of thoughts that come to mind. One is every, the the pastor that I had while I was a teenager uh, is isn't is not a good person <laughs> and wasn't mm -hmm. a good person. You know, I don't want to badmouth him too much, but uh, he uh, he represented a very Theo bro before Theo bros were much of a thing <laughs> kind of pastor. And and for the listener, that's just like a shorthand version of like. Now the image is usually like a guy with a beard, like Bible in hand at a coffee shop and just like <laughs> tweeting off hot takes that are the coldest takes ever. I guess he was a version of that. And so that was a very like bad reputation of masculinity. But I think it was less mm -hmm. about a representation and more about a culture. Like it was, mm. it was just like, like you're saying, it was, it's not just Christians who exhibit like this, like um, version of masculinity that's very focused on, <laughs> frankly, being very predatory. 
and being, you know, kind of like tough isn't even the right word, to be honest, but almost fragile, (laughs) but like being proud of your fragility. I think I was just kind of getting the worst of both worlds, pointing to this, like, you got to get a girl is like your mission in life. And, and, you know, it was, it was, it weighed on me because when I was younger, I, I, you know, I was pretty late to the having crushes game. I was pretty late to the like sex drive game. So like, I wasn't, you know, quite there but I learned that was part of my duty and I think where theology of marriage Mm. combined with just my environment of being kind of very unsupervised and just in situations in like the punk rock scene of Atlanta where it's just was kind of a free-for-all back in the emo days and so I don't know there was a lot that combined there and frankly I it only got worse at Bible college to be honest while I was certainly identifying as a feminist at Bible college which was its own experience and I I that was not received well at Bible college I think I think I was countercultural to an extent because of those good representations in my life but I think internally I just internalized like so many messages of my duty as a man is to you know basically have a family one day And if I don't do the family part, I can't do the pastor part. And if I can't do the pastor part, then I'm failing God. And so I think Mm. it was all just kind of connected more from a philosophical or theological idea than necessarily me trying to imitate someone. How did you learn about feminism? Oh, uh, you know, I I was (laughs) I'm laughing because I could just say Tumblr. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you, you can just say Tumblr, <laughs> I could just say Tumblr, you know, I mean, it's, it's weird when you grew up in the, in the, like, you know, I mean, I was a teenager from 2007 to 2012. So like, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of a weird era as up for the online space. Yeah. So like, I'd been hearing like feminist arguments, you know, as, as long as I'd been on the internet and they all seemed pretty okay to me. I would say it was kind of like, I, I definitely had a bad view of women. I think I was more reactive in Bible college because there was such disrespect for women in Bible college that hmm. I don't even know if I like had thought it out. I think I just liked saying I was a feminist to piss people off because it was, it was just so aggravating how condescending they were to like my female friends at Bible college. And I, I think that had more to do with it than, than necessarily me being super woke or anything. I think I just like saw that there was a problem and wanted to identify as the opposite of the problem. So how did you let go of people pleasing tendencies that, I mean, are, are just pretty natural from early childhood to then being, I don't, care about challenging the systems and place and maybe making people feel uncomfortable because of calling things out yeah that's been a personality of trait of mine since I've been a teenager I would say I've I've been I've been a little antagonist for quite a while Um, (laughs) so are there other people that you would say in your family have that kind of personality yes. trait? Yes. I, I would say both parents to some extent. And then also like definitely, uh, definitely at least my oldest sister. I mean, she's, she is an antagonist for sure. You know, we're, we're fans of good trouble. And I think that's like a, a cool thing that I've gotten in my family. I think also, uh, this is going to be so convoluted. I don't know if it's worth mentioning, but I think it comes from my love of Jesus when I was younger. <laughs> like, I, I think there was sort of like a, oh, this is our God and he's flipping tables. Like, I I think like my brain kind of latched onto that just naturally. So I think even when I was studying to be a pastor, I was doing it under the assumption that I was going to be 
I was going to be a, a little bit of a rebel with a cause. Like I was going to be antagonist to the secular culture in my faith and an antagonist to the church in their cultural issues. I think that was my original vision. Mm. Um, it is interesting that I realized one, that's impossible. And two, I was actually seeing the problems a little bit incorrectly. So I think it's so interesting that you say that we come from a really interesting generation mm. of evangelicals of, of being millennials and, and growing up in that. I think about DC talk and mm -hmm. the influences that DC talk had on millennial church kids. Definitely. And there was, you know, that song Jesus freak that, Oh yeah. I thought was such a headbanger. Uh, hey, it still slaps. It still slaps. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give it its kudos. It's still good. Okay, yeah. after after this podcast, we're gonna have to jam out to it. All right, um, sounds good. But, <laughs> but yeah, and then there was. Did you have the DC Talk Jesus Freak book? Uh, my older sister did. I didn't touch it ever. Okay. Yeah, I had that book. And basically, for those who did not grow up as a millennial church kid, there was a lot of focus on martyrdom and yes. learning about people who went to different countries that Christianity was not the prevalent religion. And then they would get tortured or killed for being Christian. Or what I would like to say is they got tortured and killed because they were trying to colonize. Uh, yeah. But anyhow, that, that could be a, a whole other podcast yeah. <laughs> of itself. But because of learning about, uh, honestly, very horrific things, that happened to people who identified as Christian at a very young age. I think it turned a lot of millennial church kids into this kind of punk rock Christianity of seeing it as being something that was cool to be antagonistic. Or there was also the, the God's not dead yeah. series that was coming out and encouraging children and teenagers honestly to be assholes yeah. to <laughs> people that had different beliefs yeah yeah and i think even deeper than that i mean if i i can this segues nicely into into some of what i do now and is i mean christianity's always been a little bit that way i would argue because i mean it started mm -hmm. off as a martyrdom cult i mean like it really did yeah. start off with this idea of this is everything and if you disagree someone's gotta die whether it's me or you mm -hmm. and uh yeah i think that's just been repackaged and repackaged so many times um but you're right the millennial repackaging of christianity was saying that Christianity was countercultural when it was not. And I think that was like the, the yeah. biggest lie millennials were told about Christianity is this actually isn't the countercultural thing you think it is. In fact, it's actually driving a very particular sect of culture that is contributing to more problems than maybe any other sect in the United States. Yeah. And that is a 
big reveal when you are so mm-hmm. entrenched in what I frame now as a cult. Um, when you when that gets taken away and you realize and you see what you were participating in, it's a little bit horrifying. And I think I think you I think you kind of nailed it with that millennial um, specification of there was this this idea of Christianity can be cool, and this has been. They've, it's nothing new. Christianity's but tried to be cool forever, but I think they had a lot of success with us millennials, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. I think the church has stuck around for so long because of all this rebranding. Yeah. So there was this part of you that was okay with being an antagonist of stirring up good trouble. Yeah. But then there was this other part of you whenever still practicing Christianity that saw that there were these different boxes that needed to be checked in order to be a good Christian, like Mm -hmm. getting married and the things that could come from that. Whenever I was growing up in evangelicalism, I mean, I was getting trained to be a bride to a man. Like that was what I was getting taught in all these different Christian sectors. And it cracks people up because they're like, you're like Martha Stewart. Like you cook, you clean, (laughs) like all these different (laughs) things, you know? And I'm like, yeah. And that did not happen by chance type of a thing. And, And it's because of all of this, social conditioning that happens at a very influential time of development. Being in Bible college, there was also this phrase that I remember from going to a Christian university called ring by spring. Oh yeah. We had that at Moody too. Yeah. Yeah. So this pressure to propose by springtime and I'll I'll just be blunt. I think that there were so many people that rushed into marriage at such an early age because of purity culture mm-hmm. and being told that you could not have penetrative sex before marriage. Mm-hmm. And I just think there were just a whole bunch of horny kids sure. that, you know, wanted to have their sexual needs be met and then just got married super young. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it a lot. You know, I I did I didn't I didn't propose by my <laughs> end of my freshman year, um, but I did propose someone I met by the end of my freshman year. Um, you know, I'm a divorced man now, but there was definitely a drive within me to to get married that I don't think for me was actually very sexual. I think I saw it a lot, uh, especially in men at Bible college. But for me, it was really more about I had it in my head I couldn't be a pastor if I wasn't married and had kids. I've committed. A lifelong servitude to this vocation and invested money and time in this education so you know i plot point of me starting to deconstruct and then deconvert and then in my language deprogram was a divorce and i think for me the divorce was kind of like twofold one it was a trauma and when you go through an intense trauma you have to reevaluate a lot of your life but more than that it was also like well i can't be a divorce pastor you know was the first thought mm. i was like that's not allowed you know so now i gotta think I got to think this through, but I, I, that's not why I stopped being a Christian. <laughs> but that was just like a, one of the things that started leading me down a path, I think. 
of reevaluating what I had grown up in. There were so many promises that were told to teenagers and young adults about what their lives could become whenever staying a virgin until marriage and then getting married. And I'm wondering in getting married at such a young age, was marriage being so young, what you imagined it would have been? Well, I was kind of weird because I actually didn't really want to get married young. Like I remember going off to Bible college and telling all my friends, God, I hope I don't meet my wife at Bible college. That'd be awful. Uh, That's kind of like a (laughs) joke. You know, I just I fell in love, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's that's what happens sometimes. But no, it was it was nothing like what I pictured. I mean, it it was well, in some ways, I think I pictured it being hard because I had been around enough people that told me like, yeah, marriage is going to be difficult, you know, and I had studied marriage in class and stuff like that. I wasn't too taken aback. I think what I wasn't ready for is, and this is hard to admit, but it's like I wasn't ready for a human being. I was ready for a wife. And I think like that is that's sad I don't love that but it wasn't what I was indoctrinated to believe and it made and it caused me to be a very bad human to my human you know I I think that framing was was sad but really what I've learned in years now I mean it's been like almost five years since my divorce or something like that yeah I think for me it's more what I realized is I wasn't just dehumanizing the person I happened to marry I dehumanized everyone when I was part of the cult No Mm. one was a human. I wasn't a human. You know, there was no understanding of what humanity even meant. That seems to be a common connection in cults beyond Christianity. Now that I've, you know, investigated them and studied them, like the humanization just is few and far between. Like there's not a recognition of other people's humanity when you're inside a cult. And for me, that was like a big problem my entire Christian life was I'm, I'm viewing my entire interact like all the physical interactions I'm having with people the tangible reality I'm not here because I'm viewing them all as part of this like ethereal game plan for this god I've never seen and it really is kind of haunting that for me using my language it's haunting that people can manipulate me to believing in something that I now think is just so like sad and bad you know and not and not grounded at all yeah. So I, again, that was why a lot of times I do call Christianity a cult. It's it's not just branding. Like it's like, I, I mean, it really, the tragedy of cults to me is that it dehumanizes those in the cult and those outside the cult. It's just an ideology of dehumanization. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing that, John, because it's a very vulnerable thing to acknowledge this, number one. Number two, what you're saying is just so profound. And I think that there is just so much objectification in high control groups, including Mm -hmm. evangelicalism. And whenever I've heard from people who have left evangelicalism, they stay so focused on cis women or those assigned female at birth and the objectification of them but it's not only cis women. It's not only those who are assigned female at birth who were objectified. And whenever, and, and going back to masculinity and really looking at 
healthy masculinity, we also have to acknowledge that there is also vulnerability in masculinity. Oh, absolutely. I think vulnerability is just the, the a practice everyone should be practicing, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think it, it makes you the healthiest you you can be. And it's not fun. I've been, you know, talking into a microphone for over two years now. Still not easy to say I believed these things about um, either women or people of any kind. Like that's it's not fun. It's still not fun. But it's mm-hmm. so much nicer to be able to say this and know one, a God's not judging me. An evangelical culture is not judging me. I don't have to fear hell. You know, I don't even really have to fear hate. I I really and and I shouldn't fear consequences. One of the great things about leaving Christianity is when I have to endure consequences for my actions. I don't resent those consequences because I don't think it's a part of this larger plan of God's. I just think, oh, yeah, no, I messed up there. And here's the consequence for my action. And and even like even the worst things that can happen to me are not like this like existential dreadful thing it's just ow that hurt you know better fix that and that's just such a more relaxed and and to use the idea of love again as this breathing it's it's a more loving way to live too it's a more at peace way to live oh yeah yeah absolutely going back to your experience of getting married young getting divorced young and it seems like that was a pivot point of your life and your identity. And I'm wondering, was was that the pivot point of starting to let go of the objectification that you were conditioned into in, in evangelicalism? Uh, it was an Etch-a-Sketch. Uh, I'll put it that way. It, sh- it shook everything up and now I had to rebuild something new. So it wasn't necessarily like I didn't like, you know, see divorce papers and then go, well, guess I'm not a Christian. You know, (laughs) it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't go that way at all. I mean, I held out and, you know, in the process of, you know, everybody likes to use the word deconstruction. It takes time to take apart things. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I would say the real moment I've I've shared this before, but the the real moment of change is when uh, someone was asking me. They were going through trauma. I was going through the trauma of my divorce. They were asking me, how could a good God let this pain that we are both experiencing happen? Mm. And I started saying, well, and, you know, if you think about Adam and Eve and, you know, that they sinned and then and I started giving this whole spiel that I had been given by evangelicals about how we should be thankful that God saves any of us. And, you know, flipping the narrative, the framework to mean like, how one person going to heaven is a miracle, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just so deprecating (laughs) the human experience. It's just, ah. Yeah, Yeah, it's pure pure rhetoric, no substance. And as I'm engaging in it, as I'm saying this, I stopped mid-sentence and just blurted out, I'm in a cult. Because Mm. it hit me that like I'd been given a script, I'd been given a program, and I was just following it. I didn't even believe the words that were coming out of my mouth. I was just saying it because I knew I had to say it. And I had thought about the idea of cults, you know, long before that. But that was the moment where I just I just acknowledged almost involuntarily that I was part of one. And that's when the pivot really started happening. And, And it really didn't just immediately make me not a Christian either. I mean, I still had trouble saying what my spiritual identity was for years. And I still don't like talking about what my spiritual identity is. It's not about what you believe personally for me. 
It's about the group identity and also what you're willing to associate with by proxy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I cannot be a part of this cult anymore. Again, for those reasons that it wasn't just me dehumanizing everyone around me. I was dehumanizing myself. It was just overall not good. (laughs) And so I ended up writing about it and writing ended up becoming a podcast. And I'm a lot happier. Deprogramming takes so much work and so much time of going through that. And you were mentioning the Etch-A-Sketch analogy. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I have not done an Etch-A-Sketch now in such a long time. <laughs> and it's really making me want to get a little Etch-A-Sketch now. I kind of want to have one of these little I bet you there's an app. Etch-A-Sketches. I bet you there's an app, like an Etch-A-Sketch app. I bet, but you know, it's not the same as having the little (laughs) knobs on it, you know, (laughs) it's, there's just something very special about that. Always trying to get those diagonal lines, but they look a little wonky. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Uh, I remember this time whenever they had an Etch-A-Sketch and the border around it had a light up like a neon light up and I was like wow this is so cool cool. yeah this is Etch-A-Sketch 2.0 right right here (laughs) (laughs) but in shaking up the Etch-A-Sketch of your life and really starting to rework and, and reframe things I think sometimes this is what keeps people in high control groups and for so long or causes people to return back because it's a lot of hard work to start looking at what your identity is and exploring your identity. And what are some things that you started doing post-Christianity to be exploring who you were outside of Christianity? Yeah. Um, first off, I definitely agree, right? Like it's a weird mix of isolation and self-judging when you leave a group. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you leave any identity, you have to start a new one. <laughs> I mean, you can't just be identityless. And so, you know, starting from scratch is hard. And I'm sure I made some weird choices, you know, <laughs> along the way. And I mean, at first, really what I did is I decided to become an alcoholic for a bit, try that on for a while. And that that served its purpose. And that's no more. And, you know, I had to be a little um, little van life guy for a while. That's one of the things I did. I lived in a van with my cat for a summer and that had its own experiences built in. You know, what what I did is not that relevant to me. I mean, I I really think the biggest challenge for anyone who leaves a cult or or any group, maybe, is am I going to go join another? You know, am I going to go join another cult? And I think that was something I was really afraid of (laughs) Um, Mm. that I was day. I I was joking with someone the other day. I was like, oh, every person I meet, my first question is, is this a cult leader? Because I am a little paranoid about it. I've learned it's useful to me to be paranoid about it. So that's fine with me. And it's not it doesn't feel unhealthy so far. But that was a big fear I had. I was like, am I going to go join another? Because that's very common. It's very, very common to go join a cult after you leave one. For me, I think what kept me from doing that, because I didn't I didn't have a rebound cult, I think I was so hell-bent on understanding exactly what happened to me. Because mm. I was like, how okay, how did this happen? So I did a lot of self-reflection, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of drunk pontificating, a lot of, you know, just kind of 
a fi- I gotta figure this out. And when I yeah. when, when I latched on to the cult framing, that is truly what helped me understanding myself as a cult survivor. Mm-hmm. Well, it's done. It's done a couple things. You know, we've used terms before, um, like deconstruction. Another popular one is exvangelical, right? I think those terms are useful on occasion, but they're largely lateral moves, in my opinion, when it comes to like progressing towards liberation. Um, you know, exvangelical feels like it gives. For me, it feels like it gives the cult a name and place in my life that I'm still mm. identified by what I used to be a part of. And deconstruction, you know, it's kind of been it, it's been reclaimed by Christians, at least in like a more online spaces, you know, who want to just be more liberal or affirming. They're like, it's OK to deconstruct, but not this much. And so I don't love yeah. using that word either. And I see the whole umbrella of Christianity as cultish, not just evangelicalism, though that is my definitely my primary concern. But all of that to say cult survive, I find it makes it clearer exactly what I experienced and exactly what I left and exactly what I'm speaking against. Because again, to me, this isn't about my personal faith or anyone else's personal faith. This is about a mass scale, coercive control, tribalistic and predatory group. And you know, what Mm -hmm. I define as the world's largest cult. So that, that helped me. And it helps me relate to people who aren't, you know, don't come from a Christian background, but maybe did come from another cult. So for me, it's been a much more liberating framing in my mind. I think that's what's helped me more than anything. You had mentioned that alcoholism served a point and, and purpose in your life. And a lot of people who leave high control groups mm-hmm. tend to have a complex relationship with substances. Yeah. And I'm wondering how that served a purpose in your life and then how you shifted that into a healthy relationship with alcohol. You know, to be frank and trigger warning, I'm just going to talk about suicide because frankly, we need to talk about it more. Definitely. The The thing is, I was like, I could be drunk or dead. Those mm. are my options. Uh, <laughs> and like, it's not pretty. It's not great. It's not anything I recommend. But when those are your two options, I think I chose the right one. And, you know, I another way I've described it before in therapy sessions is um, I was bleeding, I was exposed, it felt like my skin was ripped off, and I reached for the first thing, and it was duct tape. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to put duct tape on a wound, but when it's all you got, that's what you put. And the reason I like the duct tape yeah. analogy is because then later, I had to rip the duct tape off. And it sucked. And it wasn't fun. But I was able to survive long enough to have tools to that you know, to have healthier Mm. tools later on and healthier bandages later on. And eventually some of those wounds have healed. Some of them haven't. But again, it's just sometimes the framing around substance abuse, again, goes back to this kind of, is it good? Is it bad? Is it, you know, healthy or is Mm -hmm. it unhealthy? And sometimes life is more survival than just like picking your most optimal path. So I'm very glad I'm not alcoholic anymore. Don't use alcohol to cope ever. I still socially drink and have a good time, but I don't get drunk hardly ever. Um, And when I do, it's a mistake. And then I take a few weeks off. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I I just don't I just don't need it. Um, And I needed it for a minute. But I'm not like ashamed of myself for having to need it. Thank you so much for sharing that. And also for whoever is listening here, if you are having thoughts of harm or killing yourself, please reach out to 988 if Mm -hmm. you are in the U.S. or if you are in another country, please reach out to your mental health support line because 
your life is so valuable. Something that you were sharing about is how all of your identity was in Christianity. And so then having that identity crisis, it it can cause thoughts of suicide. It can cause thoughts of harm. And there is this phrase in mental health called harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And harm reduction is having a behavior that is less harmful than another in order to really survive. And it seems like at that point of your life, alcohol helped you survive. And so that you could be here today. Definitely. And I'll, I'll share something I've never shared publicly before, but I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah. Also in those days, I called the suicide hotline more than once actually. And you know, there's no shame in it. They're pretty chill people. I promise. So like, (laughs) you you don't have to worry about anything. I'll even frame it this way it it wasn't even the alcohol that helped me it was my own self-preservation it was my own damn drive to keep on living even when i didn't want to i'm a stubborn motherfucker sometimes (laughs) um, (laughs) i'll put it this way if you're leaving a cult or a faith or a, a group you know or even an identity therapy is worth a shot i dragged my feet to therapy it took me till like 2020 before i went on my own volition i also had some trauma associated with therapy so i had some reasoning for not wanting to go but give it a shot. If it's not for you, quit. You know, there's no harm in trying it. They work for you. So like, <laughs> give it a shot. And if you need to have a vice or two, that's normal. Mm-hmm. But really, like above all, like when it comes to self-care, in my opinion, like self-care really means seeking out in real life support. Yes. You know, online communities, mm-hmm. it's a parasocial minefield. They can be helpful especially in the short term, just letting you know you're not alone. But you need to find humans, real life humans who you can speak to out loud, face to face, because those friends are going to learn you. They're going to learn your strengths and weaknesses, and they're going to know how to encourage healthy habits and mindsets in you uh, way better than like an Instagram post or TikTok. So for me, it was so important to have real community, real people that I could talk to face to face and say out loud things. Again, I'm not anti social media. I think there's some good that comes out of it. But in general, I think we have the urge to isolate. And that is not healthy when you're trying to leave a cult because you've already got some isolation indoctrination in your brain that you're trying to work on. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. get out there, meet real people like and talk to them face to face. That's going to help a lot more than, uh, you know, just falling into yourself and collapsing into yourself. Oh, yes, 100%. Although I'm a therapist, I see that natural supports is Mm. such an important part of the process. And in my own experience of receiving therapy, it took me tries of different therapists until I found a good fit for me. And finding a good fit of therapists can feel a hell of a lot like dating, uh, which means it can also be exhausting of trying to find a good fit. And it's okay to take a break from searching for a therapist that could be a good fit for you. In terms of social, I think setting social goals for a weekly basis can be really good. And to find one or two places in your community to be showing up regularly where you may not even be striking up conversations with people, 
but just so that people recognize your face. So eventually people do start coming up to you and start getting known whenever you're leaving a high control group because yeah, getting out there is something that is really essential in looking at taking care of your mental health post leaving a cult. Absolutely. Yeah. A hundred percent. Couldn't agree more, especially with something like Christianity where you're used to sort of like a forced community for lack of a better way to put it when you're used to like, you know, scheduled fellowship to use their word, you know, it's good to have something to kind of just like show you that you don't need their specific version of that. And it can Mm. be very empowering to again, either have a regular spot. I can't help but be a regular whenever I like find a place I like, I end up going there many times a week if at least once you know I'm I'm very much has been a personality trait I've taken on and yeah exactly to be recognized when you walk in the door and or when I walk in the door and someone says hi John and it and I know there's no (laughs) baggage attached to it there's no how's your spiritual walk coming um like later (laughs) uh it's pretty wonderful so highly encourage it and even if you haven't left a cult it's just important to have real life connections for your mental health definitely so If you could give your younger self one piece of advice about liberation, what would that be? There is no need for your shame. I cry when I think of my younger self often. He did not deserve the internal feelings he was having. It was not his fault that he was feeling the way he was feeling. It wasn't his own brain attacking itself. All these, it wasn't no demon. Like, you know, all these like Mm. narratives that he bought into. I just wish I could tell him. I'm like, dude, you're just growing up. That's all you're doing. And you just happen to be in a cult. I mean, I probably would tell him. I'd be like, just so you know, this whole thing's a cult. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, don't, don't fall for it. You know, um, this is benefiting people besides you, and all the benefit uh, you will get from this cult are things that will harm other people. And so I think I would just kind of lay it out for him. But I also know he wouldn't believe me and would have to go through the whole process himself. When I think of my younger self, I just wish I could give him a hug more than anything. I don't really have like a a thing, a magic words that I think would heal him. Even if I could just put that idea of cult in his brain a little earlier, maybe a little less harm would have happened at his hands. (laughs) And uh, I would love to be able to do something like that. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, the younger self, like he got me here. So thanks for that. And I'm happy to be to be here now, which is an awesome thing to say. Well, I wish that I could give you a hug from here in New York (laughs) to Atlanta. Like this was such a lovely conversation, John. And I'm just so thankful for your candidness and all of this work that you're doing in terms of journalism and writing, podcasting about the cult of Christianity and finding liberation from cults and cult-like mentality. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. This is, uh, you know, I'll talk to you anytime. Thank you for joining John and me on The Liberated Porch. And be sure to check out John's book, The Cult of Christianity, and his podcast, The Cult of Christianity. There are such good things on this. And if you enjoyed what you listened to today, please share, subscribe, and rate this podcast wherever you listen.